This episode, the first of a two-part series, was done four years ago that has significant historic importance. It is being replayed for those of you who may not have heard it. It tells the story firsthand of brave freedom riders who changed dual waiting laws and bus stations for blacks and whites in the South in 1961. This is one of several segments featuring freedom writer David Fankhauser, who, in 1961, spent 42 days in Parchman Penitentiary in the Mississippi Delta. Rolling down to Jackson, oh yeah. Rolling down to Jackson, oh yeah. And now, here's Jerry Springer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Uh, Thanks for coming. And on this podcast, we're going to do things a little bit differently because the story that we're going to hear is uh, so dramatic and so much a part of our history and, as we will see, sadly, our present as well. So we're going to dispense with, you know, the tomfoolery because we are sitting in the midst of courage, You know, when we talk of courage, we talk about doing something that is important, dangerous, and you are afraid, but you do it anyway because it is important. That's the definition of courage. You could do something that is dangerous and you're afraid and you do it anyway, but if it's not important, then that's not courage, that's just foolishness. So jumping into a river when you don't know what's at the bottom of it is foolish. But if you see a baby suddenly falling into the river, you don't care. You do it, even if it's just as dangerous because it's important. Well, understanding that courage, that will underline everything we talk about in this podcast. Because we have with us a man, a doctor, a professor at um, University of Cincinnati who, at the age of 19, gave as fine an example of courage as I certainly know in my lifetime, and I just met him five minutes ago. But his story about what he faced and what it meant for America, you have to listen to. And our kids today have to hear it. And we have musicians in the audience, and we always play music. Later on, Gene is going to be asking all these musicians to take the songs that we hear today, and wherever you perform around the country, play at least one of those songs and tell your audience that story. We are talking about the Freedom Rides. If I ask people today, do you remember the Freedom Rides, or even kids that study it in school, they will know that's something about, oh, yeah, that's when... America was segregated and we sent kids, uh, we we put people on buses black and white and they went into uh, bus terminals and they went into uh, restrooms and they went into waiting rooms and the white people sat where it said colored and the colored people sat where it said white and this was revolutionary and particularly in the South, people went crazy. The law, the authorities went crazy and beat up on people, beat up on these kids, arrested them. You're going to hear the whole story. That's what freedom right. This fella, David Fankhauser, who is with us today, was one of the original freedom riders. 
And so, number one, I'm honored to be in your presence. We all are. I have trouble imagining how you even got to take that on. You're 19 years old. You're from Ohio. And you go to college. The college you go to is a college that is, and by the way, you can't see it in the podcast, uh, David is Caucasian. David is white. He is whiter than me. He's a professor. He doesn't get outdoors. You decided to go to a college that is 99% black. Central State College. Um, in fact, I was the beneficiary of uh, reverse uh, affirmative action. Um, as a result, uh, I come from a humble family. They couldn't afford to send me to college, but Central State with a combination of, of a scholarship and work study and uh, loans, I was able to go to college at Central State. So that's why I was at a uh, college 99.4% uh, black. I'm assuming that wasn't the only college in Ohio that you could go for relatively very little money. No, I was already a troublemaker. I was devoted to civil rights, and I saw the injustice. Where did that come from? Uh, it came uh, especially from my mother, uh, Polly Brokaw, yes. who was an activist um, throughout the, the 40s and 50s. Uh, I remember as a child, uh, I think I was probably 12, 11 or 12, we could not afford to go to Coney Island. But she announced that we are going to Coney Island. Coney Island being Coney. in uh, Cincinnati. This, is a, this was an amusement park yes. at, the, right. at the time. And uh, we were going in a caravan. Well, it turned out what it was, was we were attempting to integrate Coney Island. It was segregated. And I didn't fully understand that that was the purpose of this trip to Coney Island. How old were you? I was, I think, probably 10 or 11. Oh, okay. So you're a kid, you're so, going to Coney Island. Uh, yeah, I'm going to okay. Coney Island. Well, as soon as a car with a black person in it got at the gate, they wouldn't let them in. We sat there for two hours, and then they shut down Coney Island rather than let us in. So, this is not Mississippi. No. This is Cincinnati, no, Ohio. That's exactly right. So when you showed up, freshman orientation at your college, which was 99 point something percent mm. black, mm -hmm. there was in part of your mind that it's not just cheaper for me to go to college here, but you didn't know about Freedom Rides yet. No, no, no. no. Freedom, no, no. Did you know about sit-ins at lunch counters? I went there in 1959, and the sit-ins were just starting to take place. Right. But um, the civil rights movement was still in its uh, infancy, really. I mean, there, there had been efforts, but it, it hadn't had a lot of success. Who came up with the idea of uh, Freedom Rides? First Freedom Ride was 1947. Uh, there was a Supreme Court uh, ruling called Morgan versus, anyway, the Morgan ruling yeah. that said it's illegal to segregate interstate facilities. And so that was the law of the land. That was 1947. But it was not enforced. It, hardly. And in fact, so the first Freedom Ride, well, the goal was to demonstrate really that the law was not being enforced. And so took the bus towards the south. And when they would get to a station, they would purposefully integrate. Well, they got as far as North Carolina when they were, they were beaten up and arrested. Now, on the bus were white and black people. And when they came to a rest stop, they would, the whites on the bus and I'm going to use the term white and black, sure. and everyone knows what I'm talking about. Okay. So uh, the whites would go into the 
restrooms which had colored, uh, that had the sign saying colored? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes we would all go into the white waiting room. In fact, I was arrested in a white waiting room. But yes, that was the, the goal was to demonstrate that uh, the law was not being enforced, and that was pretty easy to do. <laughs> Did they know you were coming? Congress of Racial Equality yes. said, well, they're still not enforcing the law, uh, so we're going to repeat the Freedom Rides that was started in 1947. And so in 61, they started out in Washington, D.C., and the goal was to go all the way through the Deep South to New Orleans and test each. How did they get the people to volunteer to be on the bus? Well, Congress of Racial Equality, core had a core of people yeah. that uh, were interested in doing that demonstration. So the bus started in Washington, D.C. Correct. And the idea was to go through North Carolina, South, South Carolina, Carolina, Georgia, Georgia, Alabama, Alabama, Mississippi, finally to New Orleans. Exactly. exactly. Now, the first Freedom Ride was exactly as we're recording this. It was May 4th, 1961. They, that's right. That's and that right. was just a small group. Correct. How far did they get before they were? Well, well what happened surprisingly, to them? they didn't. You weren't on that. Bus no, yet. I was not. I was okay. still at college. There was no problem when they went through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. I think the locals there were wise enough to see that if they didn't make a stink, well, that didn't happen in so in, in Alabama. <laughs> right. But in the states up to that, what a lot of these places were doing, because they didn't want to create a confrontation, right. they literally took down the colored signs and the white signs, let them pass, didn't make a stink about it. They didn't want a big newspaper thing to inspire people. But once the Freedom Riders left, then they put the signs back on. But once you got to Alabama, things changed. Mm -mm -mm. What happened? Uh, so in Anniston, Alabama, the Ku Klux Klan uh, organized a literally a mob. By the way, in my opinion, the Ku Klux Klan is the preeminent terrorist organization in the history of the United States because it, their whole goal was to enforce the oppression of black people through terror. Right. So the Ku Klux Klan was waiting for the bus in Anniston. Um, they punctured the tires. Yep. The bus pulled out of the station, but after about six miles, the tires went flat. The Klan had followed them. They broke a window and threw a firebomb in the bus. The bus caught on fire. They held the door shut. Their intent was to incinerate the Freedom Riders on that bus. Right. Uh, eventually, the gas tank exploded. Uh, and so the, the Klan got afraid of that. They backed away. And so the Freedom Riders were able to get off. And some of the pictures that were taken by uh, little Joe Postiglione, a guy who is uh, courageous in his own place, was the only reporter taking pictures. And if you see any of these pictures of the burning Greyhound bus, Joe Postiglione took, took those pictures. He was a resident of Anniston. To this day, I'm friends with his son. And that family is a pariah in Anniston to this day because of the pictures. Now, these pictures is when I became aware of the Freedom Rides. Okay. During the course of this podcast, there are going to be a lot of references made to particular pictures. So we are going to put up okay. on our podcast website, your website, but people can also go to your website, which is? If you just uh, Google Fankhauser and Freedom Rides, you'll find Got it. it. Fankhauser, F-A-N-K-H-A-U-S-E-R. Right. And you can see the pictures we're referring to. Now, this is the first time you heard about it. That's correct. You're right. sitting in college campus. You're That's in right. your dorm room. with a Studying my chemistry. Now, what happened? Well, 
for one thing, I'd want to go this was on the front page. I have a choice of freedom around the world. There you go. No so wonder you went around there. the world. This was this was on yeah. the front page of every newspaper yes. around the world. Yes. Now there were two buses that day. One was the was the Greyhound, which was burned. The yes. other one was the Trailways bus. The people on the Trailways bus did not hear what happened to this bus when they arrived in Birmingham. Again, there was a, a mob organized by the Ku Klux Klan who had specifically been given 15 minutes by the police chief for them to punish the Freedom Riders that were on that bus. Before they would, the police would agree to go in That's and, correct. and stop That's the right. violence. So, so they, they beat back. the tar out of the Freedom Riders as they came off the bus. And then uh, after about 15 minutes, the police came in and uh, arrested the Freedom Riders. Was Congress... <laughs> not, not the people that were doing the beatings, yeah. Right. Was John Lewis, who went on to become, you know, this famous congressman, yes. he was on that bus? On that bus. That was the first time and, we heard of John <clears throat> Lewis. Yeah, yeah. And he, was, and he was severely beaten. Many of the Freedom Riders were hospitalized, and so students from Fisk came down. In, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And boarded a bus from Birmingham to Montgomery. To continue the ride. That's right. Bobby Kennedy was pleading with the, with attorney, the, general the attorney general at the time. Attorney general uh, pleading for them to call the Freedom Rights Office. Somebody's going to get killed. Got it? No, they're going to insist. So then he sent down uh, John Siegenthaler, who was right. his uh, assistant attorney general, to see what was going on, because he had gotten assurances that there would not be these kind of beatings. He got beaten himself. He, he? well, he was knocked unconscious. He fractured skull. They were beating. Um, a black woman, and he walked up and said, uh, stop that, you're going to kill her. I'm with the federal government, <laughs> which is the say. wrong thing to say. Well, they hit him over the head with a tire iron, knocked him unconscious, kicked him into the gutter, um, and so he himself wound up being hospitalized. And uh, there were several other freedom rights. Jim Peck, remember I said that name? 52 stitches to close up the wounds in his head and uh, numerous other of the writers were hospitalized. Was anyone put in jail? No, not at that point. Is that when the call went out, we need right. more people yes. to come down? And that's when you Exactly right. Now, <clears throat> did you come through the university or did you read about it in a newspaper? Uh, got a call from Diane Nash. Why did she call you? Well, she called Central State College. They did not have enough riders to uh, put together another bus that would go from Montgomery to Jackson. Meanwhile, Jim Farmer, the head of Corps, said, okay, somebody is going to get killed. We quit. We have to, in good conscience, stop the Freedom Rise. Diane Nash said, uh-uh. She recognized the momentum. This was the time to continue. So that's when she said, we're going to do it. You guys can quit. But SNCC called around to black schools, especially in the eastern half of the United States, for volunteers to come down and assume the seats on the bus. To let people know who Diane Nash is, there were three students, clearly three students who were more of the leaders. They went to Fisk University. Mm -hmm. So she's a student right. and obviously a woman, which in itself was because all the leaders of the civil rights movement at that point were these you know, men. She is a hero of mine. Yes. And she exemplified the sexism that was rampant in the civil rights movement, which is one of those ironies that they were looking for civil rights for blacks, but not equal rights for men and women. And within the black community, she was very fair-skinned, where she could on occasion pass. And so there was some view that she could be doing our negotiating because she mm -hmm. seemed less threatening. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there was also a division between the, you know, the grown-ups were the ones that were saying, well, be careful, mm -hmm. we, this can get out of hand, you know, we have to get along, we have to be more peaceful, etc. And the kids were saying, no, now. And a lot of the kids, and, and then you take over from there, because this is now a question. I had read that a lot of the kids were afraid to tell their parents oh, what they were right. doing. That's right. And all of us who are parents would frankly have the same advice. Your kid calls you and say, I want to go down to Mississippi and Alabama on a freedom ride. And how long would that conversation on the phone go on? And so they didn't tell their right. parents. Right. That's, and, that's it, and that is what, in fact, happened. But you are correct. There are a number of Freedom Riders who did not tell their parents that they were going. Yeah. And now, all of a sudden, you know, they hear about this. Okay. Right. So you got the call. The okay. president of NAACP, and he came to me. So you sign up. Yep. Okay. I'll come down. When do you want us down? She gives you a date later in May. The beatings in uh, Montgomery occurred on the 22nd, I believe. So yeah. the 23rd is when we got the call. And I flew down on the 24th. So you flew down, and you right. flew to where? To Montgomery, Alabama. Okay, you get off the plane in Montgomery, and now you're picked up by someone in that group? Yeah. And yes, you're uh, taken by where? Dr. Abernathy's house. Right. Picked Who up? became head of it all when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Wasn't he the next? Martin Luther King was really the spokesperson, but, but Dr. Abernathy was, was also very strong in supporting the movement. When we got in the car at the airport, we were told to lay down on the floor or the back seat. We don't want anybody to see any white folk in the car with blacks. Okay, now you're afraid. Yeah, that is, that's, I said, hmm, <laughs> what did I get yeah. myself into? And try to think back, imagine what you were thinking then. I thought, well, this is interesting. And when we got to Abernathy's house, we were told, don't go anywhere near the windows uh, because the Klan, if they see that there's whites in, in Abernathy's house, they'll, they'll blow, blow the it up again. They already blew his house up once when, uh, during the yeah. bus boycott. The deepest, profound fear I felt was when I was sent with David Myers, another student from Central State, yeah. who was a freedom writer. He, he's white also. We were sent to the train station to pick up uh, additional Freedom Riders. And sitting there in the train stations is when it really hit me of the danger that we were in because the hatred and culture of violence um, against the Freedom Rides was palpable. And we, we did not know whether the Klan, how much they knew and whether they were being followed. And sitting there on the, on the station platform waiting for that train, um, I, I was broke out in a cold sweat. And who was in that home then? So it was uh, Shuttlesworth. Wyatt T. Walker, Shuttlesworth, um, Jim Lawson, um, Dr. Martin Luther King. Was Diane Ash there? No. no. Oh, so it was just the guys? Yeah. It's just the guys. That's, that's, that sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> the, the question was, um, okay, so let me back up a little bit. There were a group of divinity students from Yale led by William Sloan Coffin who got on the bus the day I arrived, but they didn't want us to get on that bus. They wanted this to be a Yale event. Yes. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when they went and they were arrested in Jackson, not beaten up. And it was clear that the strategy now was going to be not to 
allow the beatings, which you, you see the, yeah. the pictures around the world, that's looking really bad. So they're just going to arrest them and throw them in jail. So we see now, well, what are we going to do? To be perfectly honest, there was a conscious striving to draw out the violence because it's through the violence society is educated about the sickness of segregation in the South. And there was an intent to draw out the violence. Actually, the National Guard had been called out, fixed bayonets. And Montgomery was now a police state. As a, as a pacifist, I still wasn't too sorry to see the National Guard out there with their... Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the strategy that was developed, I can remember the table in Abernathy's house where we discussed, the new strategy is fill up the jails. So we're going we're gonna to go to Jackson, we're going to get arrested, and we're going to refuse to bail out. So you will sit in the jails. That's right. And if you had enough students coming down, eventually the jails would be overcrowded. What are they going to do? That's right. And so the call went out, and uh, this is where the young Turks in the civil rights movement were angry at Dr. King because he wouldn't get on the bus. Well, there are two reasons not to do that. One of them is he was already on parole. He would have gone to jail immediately for two years if he violated parole. The other is he was a national spokesman for this. And he could attract attention, and he sent the word out. We need more writers to come down. And at that point in the civil rights movement, it became a national movement, not just a local movement. Sit-ins at a lunch counter, bus boycott, all of those were local. And it didn't capture the imagination of the nation, and it turned the civil rights movement into a national movement. And indeed, young people came from all across the United States. Now all this is reaching the White House. And in hindsight, we look back at the Kennedy administration and we, you know, one of the things we think of President Kennedy is civil rights and et cetera, but it didn't come quickly. And they knew that if they came out in favor of civil rights, the strongest portion of the Democratic Party were the Dixiecrats. These are the people that the, the South had been solidly Democratic and, and, uh, and they decade after South decade and after Kennedy decade. Be so all the leadership then, right? in the Senate, the Democratic leadership was from the South. So that if, if the Kennedys came out in favor of civil rights, they feared that the Democrats would uh, jump ship. And indeed, where are the most conservative members of the Republican Party? Where do they come in from? In the South, yeah. yeah. Well, well Lyndon Johnson famously said when he passed the Civil Rights Act, we've lost right. the South. That's and right. since that time, they, in fact, have lost the right. South. But to make it a little more complex, that's clearly they were politicians, and they wanted to win the election in 1964. Right. Right. And they knew that if they came out with this, they would not win the election. They also knew because they had the seniority system in the Senate, as you were just referring to, all the, the chairman of the committees, which is different today, but back then, all the chairmen of the committee were from the southern states right. because they had seniority because you couldn't beat a Democrat in the South. Right. And no legislation would get passed. And there was also one other thing. This is 1961. It's after the Bay of Pigs. Kennedy is getting ready to meet Khrushchev. Yes. Uh, Right, at and just the same time. At just the same time. And he's thinking, as this new young president, I'm going to be meeting, you know, and this was, the world was divided. You had uh, the free countries, uh, you know, with America. You had communism, the communist world under Khrushchev of the Soviet Union. And then you had the third world, and there was a competition to get the third world to go to each side. The great argument that we 
Americans and in free democracies believe we have is that, you know, we believe in freedom, the dignity of the individual, people should have the rights, etc. Well, these pictures, which we refer to, of buses burning and, and, and later on of uh, Bull Connor uh, beating up on mm -hmm. little black children who were trying to go to school or people trying to right. register to vote, this is not a good way to sell the world <laughs> on, it made us look totally right. hypocritical. Right. And therefore, and he was legitimately concerned about that issue. That's not an excuse. I'm just saying we have to, in looking at this whole picture, be fair about why they made the assessments they did. So he was hoping at least if there's going to be any stuff going on, can you at least wait till I finish with my summit with sure, Kusha? Let, <clears throat> let me jump in. Sure. I'm one person that gives no quarter to JFK and Robert Kennedy when they did not step up. So I can be a supporter of Bobby Kennedy and was and yep. would have been, but they need to be called out on this. I appreciate the political analysis. They needed to step up for 400 strong college kids, black and white, walking into the jaws of death. So that's just another point of view on JFK and RFK. Well, I'm totally agreeing with you because I would have argued with you if I were sitting in the room with John F. Kennedy, I would say, Mr. President, nothing is going to make you look better to the rest of the world if you're the one standing up there. They're saying, even in our own country, I'm taking a stand. We are going to make it free for all the people. It's shameful that we've been a divided country throughout our history. All people are entitled to equality, et cetera. So I think he could have picked up points with the rest of the world instead of having it go away. But Politicians, 99% of the time, are always going to take the path of well, least well, resistance. Well, not just the rest. Of, in the United States itself, though, the, United, the vast majority of the citizens in the United States were just horrified that, that we were making this mess. That we're, you're making us look, this is an irony, you're making us look oh, bad sure. by going down and having, well, as, yeah, we're, something looks bad, but it isn't, we're doing that, we're well, bringing it And let's it make out. it clear, the federal law said that all the practices you went down to knock down, Jim Crow practices, right. were illegal. Right. Right. And JFK right. and RFK did not, in my view, do enough to step up and say, what in the hell are we doing these freedom riders are trying to get the laws enforced. Mm -hmm. That's right. And David, back to the home, to Ralph Abernathy's home, the strategy changed to fill up the jails. Correct. And then within, what, several days, you got on the so bus? So finally, uh, on the 28th of May, that was, we were hiding out in Abernathy's house for four days. On Sunday morning, 6 a.m., we got on a bus. We went through the cordon of the National Guard, onto the bus. It's a six-hour trip. It did not stop. Um, I remember when we passed from Alabama, there was a big sign, Welcome to Mississippi, and my heart just kind of got a little tighter. <laughs> when we arrived in, um, in Jackson, again, there was a cordon of police, and they almost funneled us into the white rating room. Um, and uh, we sat down. Uh, Captain Ray came up, said, y'all have to move on. And, uh, and I said, why is that? Y'all have to move on. And uh, I said, well, I've, I'm just sitting here. Y'all under arrest. And so back into the paddy wagon. And, uh, quickly. This all that was very quickly. quickly. Very quick. And now you go to the Jackson, Mississippi jail. So, yeah, so, so they segregated the Freedom Riders. They put the blacks in the county jail and the whites in the city jail. 
Uh, we were, David Myers and I were the first white Freedom Riders to refuse to bail out. I think they thought we were insane. They put us in solitary confinement, saw nobody until additional white riders uh, came several days later. But eventually there were more and more riders and within about uh, 10 days, the bullpen, the bullpen is a large cell with iron bunk beds and an iron picnic table. Well, it was, it was made for 16 and we had 24 people in there. And so that's when they moved us to Parchman State Penitentiary. And for those who don't know that, that is, you know, they always have the prison guard that is just beating up on people and told to stand there naked the whole time, and, you know, you're barely mm -hmm. fed. And, well, Parchman uh, is yeah, actually subject to a, number, a yeah. lot of blues, yeah. Yeah, the Parchman Farm Blues, which some of you may know about. Mose Allison wrote a great song uh, uh, on, about uh, sitting over here on Parchman Farm. They call it Parchman Farm because it's about a thousand acres, and they grow a lot of cotton, and... Honestly, I was looking forward to chopping cotton. I'd rather be out chopping cotton than sitting in jail. No, uh, they put us in the maximum security unit on death row, and uh, like many prisons uh, today, there's a disproportionate number of blacks in prison, and uh, they didn't want us uh, getting them uppity. You can take our mattress, oh yeah. Oh yeah. You can take our mattress, oh You have been listening to a special edition of Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery. Tune in again to hear the continuing conversation, and don't forget to tell your friends. You can take our mattress, oh